Hello, and welcome to another outro for the Filluminati Philosophy Podcast. This episode was recorded at your buddy Tom Studios in Hillsboro, or whatever the fuck we're going to call it, the the launch pad. We had the uh, Art Fettig is one of Tom's old friends who is a motivational speaker, humorist, Andy Griffith impersonator. He writes books. He pretty much does everything, and he's almost 90 years old next month, so I decided to have a little chat with him and just talk about performing and staying creative and what keeps you going year after year when you're a performer. Because you can do anything. Like You don't have to be funny all the time. That's what he figured out, is that people just want to hear stuff on stage coming from a human being. And that's all of us. Uh, be inspired. We got both inspirational, both inspired by each other's conversations. He said he learned something. I learned some stuff about comedy. And he had a lot of great wealth of wisdom. So without any further ado, I give you a crossover episode of What's Up With Tom and Filluminati with Art Fettig. And ready. One, two, four, five. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of What's Up With Tom. Today's guest is Art Fettig, a world-renowned motivational humorist and speaker from, I guess I'll find out now. Uh, from mm-hmm. Hillsboro, North Carolina. Oh, yeah. Now. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the, like a suburb of... Chapel Hill, or at least that's what people are using it for now. Oh, we don't call it that. We call it Chapel Hill's a suburb. Oh, yeah. Hillsboro's a famous town where General Cromwell used to live, mm-hmm. famous general. So uh, <laughs> they don't even know about that in Hillsboro, so don't tell them. Oh, yeah. How tactical it is. Yeah. I remember that day I got, the first time I got pulled over for driving out of headlight. It was right up under that bridge between Hardee's and McDonald's. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was staking out. I was like, how can I get home? Because I know I can't just, like, get a tow truck or anything. Right. And I saw the police going around five, like, they had five cars going in a circle, and every ten minutes they wanted to check on my car. <laughs> and then finally I had them timed out perfectly, so I had to duke some hazard and just take a hard left and go home without a Oh, light. yeah. Yeah. You, you made it all right, huh? Mm-hmm. It was fun, though. Like, I was born to be, like, a... Dukes of Hazard type of person. That's good. The, uh, the country upbringing. Uh, that's that's you're, you're just a country boy, I can tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're a modern one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lots happening today. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Did you ever hear that? Oh yeah. That's Motown. Mm-hmm. Motor City. Motor City and. I was fortunate enough to be back there when I could hear all of the great blues bands and the big bands and the rubber bands, and it was mm-hmm. all kind of nice stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just went through a, So where are we going today? Oh, yeah. I guess we're going to try to start off about, like, how did you get into it? Well, uh, I... Uh, first time I ever got on a stage was on a troop ship coming home from Korea mm-hmm. and we stopped off at Japan you know and uh, we were sitting on the deck rehearsing I played with a band and it just turned out 
they didn't have a drummer for this great black band. Mm -hmm. And so I said, shine a dark light on me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I did a, a sat, sit and waiting on this coal ship, troop ship uh, deck. We'd sit there. And there's a guy there that played banjo, great banjo. And, and sure enough, we, we, uh, we did some uh, rehearsing there. He was rehearsing. And I sat there and wrote a song, Goodbye to Yokohama, Hello Frisco, I'm coming home again. And, and we kept playing that thing back and forth. And first show we did, we closed with that number and we got five encores. The troops just went, you know, goodbye to Mama-san, goodbye to Papa-san, goodbye to Baby-san, and hello, my mammy. And we were just crazy. We called ourselves the Happiness Boys. Mm -hmm. And that's the first taste I ever had of being in front of an audience. And so I was so excited to come home that uh, 30 years later, <laughs> oh, yeah. You got your life together from coming back. Yeah, I started doing stuff and started speaking. Toastmasters and practicing, and I got lucky to be on a team with a motivational speaker. And this guy was teaching at Notre Dame, and he was also doing a little moonlight in like 150 shows a year. And so the team. We had to keep him provided with speeches and material. And he had all kinds of people, intellectuals and uh, writers and stuff working, keeping him on the road. And uh, it was just like going to heaven for somebody who wanted to learn speaking. Yeah, yeah. Like you work on the job for somebody else, but it also works for you because you, it helps you out on your own. That's right. Mm -hmm. If you can get, somehow get an apprenticeship with somebody that's doing something that. Uh, it starts to saturate and soak in, and you learn what not to do more than what to do. And, uh, save yourself years of struggling. You're going to struggle anyway, no matter what you're doing. Oh, yeah. I, that's the thing about people who get into comedy now. It's like everybody wants to be comfortable, but nothing right. really ever grows out of comfort. Right. That's right. And that's... I, I, it's pain. It's called pain, you know. Oh, yeah. Truth plus pain is comedy. Let's say that's the equation. Yeah. The, uh, I, I was not a comedian as such, but the first gig I had, uh, I did about 60% uh, comedy. And I'd tell stories that uh, would, uh, I was like a roller coaster. My, my whole concept of speaking was to take people on a roller coaster and with pathos and uh, you know make them cry and make them laugh and mm -hmm. and uh but you always have to have that humor and be able to deliver it or you're gonna die oh, yeah <laughs> we were talking about christians dying a little while ago oh yeah the martyrs tell, tell me a little bit about that this i guess it's the concept of but it, like right now, it's like everybody thinks it's a, like an apocalyptic or apocalyptic world where every all the systems are coming crashing down, and <laughs> like everybody's trying to say that you have to be true or keep everything kind of in like an ideological way or live your life fully on with the group and not actually deviate from it. Right. My whole thing is like 
you can still be a positive and Christ loving person and put out that kind of energy even if you're slightly not perfect and like you might cuss a little bit or something like that and I guess the death part of it was the social kind of assassination thing that's going on now like censorship and people saying you can't say certain things if you're not from this thing and it's like a lot of uh, I what, what I was thinking uh, when you were talking, I was thinking of was, we somewhere that they, they got talking about blackface. Oh, people, yeah. you know, white people doing blackface. Mm -hmm. And now they're looking up all the old movies and everything and mm -hmm. they're attacking these people yeah. and they're dissing them. I mean, they're long and dead and gone, but mm -hmm. they're destroying their names. Mm -hmm. But this was just a part of show business. Yeah. As art, you know. like art is not always like just some like a picture of a fruit on a table. Right. Sometimes it's got to be a little controversial, but sure. it's like. Cause I think that's like if, there, if blackface never existed, we would have never got the movie *Tropic Thunder* that revitalized Robert, Robert Downey Jr.'s career. Uh-huh. I gotta. Uh, I just stand in awe when I see some people coming in to a program, and they have come for the purpose of standing up and walking out on you. Mm -hmm. they, they actually came for that. Oh yeah, yeah. they want to get offended. Yeah. And, and when that happens, you know, uh, you say, well, I, I guess I scored with him. You know? mm -hmm. I gave him what he wanted. And, and these are these negative influences in your life that you you got to smile at and try to uh, bring them around some way to mm -hmm. s some of what you're trying to share with people, you know. Well, I hope, my whole thing is, I think, like, just for kind of a comedic kind of joke purpose, if Jesus came back, he would probably be like a stand-up comic. Yeah. Because back in the old days, he's pretty much just going around doing speeches and motivating people and just expressing what he experienced and right. trying to help people. And that's usually the base of a lot of people's thing. But once you get into the comedy and like try to say you can't say this or shut other people down to rise up, that's not about like what Christ right. was about. Right. It's a little bit like you. Uh, traveling show or vaudeville no no a traveling medicine show where the guy's selling uh, some kind of miracle elixir uh, he's got to get that audience around there before he can make his pitch well uh, jesus would have would be doing comedy and mm -hmm. and he'd probably have saint peter uh, playing banjo oh, yeah. you know some props like making the water wine thing there you go yeah. Yeah, doing some <laughs> some real magic, you know, mm -hmm. wild magic. But uh, you got to get to people, you know. Mm -hmm. You got to get to people where they're at, and then then you can function. Okay. But if you don't, you might as well stay home and, and just mope about it and say, "Oh, those president and that Congress and that." Mm -hmm. uh, you could just go crazy in ten minutes if you turned on the TV today. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, they say tend to the gardens you can touch. And that's why I was like, everybody, everybody wants you to pay attention to their garden. So, like, well, I'm not eating any fruit from there, so what's the deal? And then, I guess part of being creative is going out and just finding your own garden and planting your own seeds and growing your own community. You hit a button, that word creativity. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I start looking back on my life. I'm going to be 90 years old next month.
and you got a long way to look back, and and the generations. I mean, if you take a generation, it could be ten years. You know, every ten years, people change, mm -hmm. and I wonder if anybody listened to me. You know, and say, this guy's ninety years old. Oh, look at the slaver running out of his mouth there. Look mm -hmm. at look at those wrinkles. My golly, mm -hmm. and my message. And every once in a while, I get the opportunity to sound off. My, my message is never changing, changing, never. From the first time I started speaking, my message was simple. I just look the audience in the eye and say, there's greatness in you, you know that? Mm -hmm. There's greatness in you, in every single one of you. <laughs> and most people never heard that before. Oh, yeah. Never heard there's greatness in you, or you're going to be really somebody one of these days if you just keep doing what you're doing and keep getting better a little bit better tomorrow a little bit better the next day that's what you gotta have and you gotta have courage to fail and fail and fail and fail and fail and fail mm -hmm. so, so how many rejection slips did you get on your first book 30 mm -hmm. how many rejection slips did mark hansen and his partner get you're not going to believe this. Mm -hmm. How many rejection slips did Mark Hansen get on uh, on their their series of books? The first one, Chicken Soup for the Soul. How many? Uh, what was that? Five hundred. Mm -hmm. Five hundred. There aren't that many publishers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there are. They found this little one in Florida. Do you know they went on to sell? Listen, listen to this, I, drum roll, mm -hmm. 500 million books. Yeah. You say, there 500 million books, what are you, you crazy? There, nobody ever sold 500 million books. Chicken Soup did. Mm -hmm. Look it up. I still see them at the gas station to this day in the book department, like the Every, little magazine. Everywhere you look, go to mm -hmm. a yard, I went to a yard sale yesterday. What did I see? Chicken Soup for the Woman's Soul, mm -hmm. you know, 500 million. Uh, oh man! Like right now, like in I've noticed in comedy, a lot of people are kind of afraid to fail, so they don't put themselves in situations where that's going to happen. Right? They think that's going to define who they are for the rest of their life. You, you know, starting out, we uh, let me give this illustration. I saw the the great. I I, I heard him refer to one of Mister, the top man in show business. Somebody was talking about him on one of the stations I was watching, Sammy Davis Jr. Mm -hmm. And he got on on a, a stage, the Paradise Theater in Detroit, Michigan. It used to be Orchestra Hall, and it had fallen into ruin. And some guy bought it and put on the same shows they had at the Apollo in Chicago. And Sammy Davis got up and he sang the song, "The Way You Look Tonight." You know, and he's first he does the, one of the greatest male black men in the business, uh, Herb Jeffries, and he goes, "Oh, but you're lovely." Mm. He didn't sound like that, that's for sure. Yeah. But he did a beautiful voice. Of Herb was then the blind singer, who, who I treasured. He's he, Al Hibbler, he, he was a blind man, and he sang uh, uh, a song. Oh, I, 
I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And he would drop a whole octave, a tree. And he did him singing the same song. And then he did Jerry Lewis cutting up and being crazy. Dean Martin had Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra. And then he said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the voice of Sammy Davis Jr. And he comes on with this powerful, beautiful, fantastic voicing. And, and I thought, man, you know, that's, and comics come on and speakers what we used to do we'd sit and judging new uh, new speakers mm-hmm. at the national speakers association the guy brother and they said what did you think of him he said well he did four minutes of bill gove mm-hmm. he did five minutes of herb true then he did uh, earl nightingale's uh, rec- record the strangest secret and then uh but he didn't have any. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the voice of Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. No, no. You know what they had? He put on nothing. Nothing. The guy's a complete imitator. He's stolen the material and did it poorly. Mm-hmm. Not anywhere near. And you, you, you've you seen that in every comedy show. Somebody gets up and Oh, yeah. That's Bill Cosby, or, mm-hmm. or nowadays, who would he do? Brody Stevens. Sure. Yeah, he just killed himself, but some guy waited like three days later and just started doing his act. I'm like, this is crazy, yeah. but nobody else would call it out. That's so right. I pulled him aside, and he finally, I, I haven't seen him in like three weeks, but I think he started doing his own thing. Or, or he might do five minutes of this guy, and mm-hmm. two minutes of this guy, and then this guy's best joke, right. and and you know, and you say, who is he? Nobody. I don't know who he is. Just guy came in off the street and been listening to some tapes. I think, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's not who you get. You got to get to the point where, but but you know who Sammy Davis was when his voice came. Oh, yeah. Sammy Davis was Herb Jeffries. He, the the best of the of this quality of Herb Jeffries. The best of Al Hill Hibblers. Mm-hmm. You know, had a little whimsy in there. From Jerry Lewis, just a little shot to put a little humor in that, you know, that's who he was. But he was a whole new element. It mixed it, stirred the biller, stirred. Every new idea, every new product is a combination of two others put together to create, that's the word, creativity, to create something new and better. Mm-hmm. See? And that's your challenge and yeah. uh, now I'm sitting here going, how, how am I going to make that my challenge you know mm-hmm. to relate to these people that I cannot understand these kids today man yeah. I, mean, I just can't understand them I don't you know, either <laughs> you know, you're just coming out of a generation yeah. how, how old are you Ben? 29 29 mm-hmm. yeah do you understand 19 year old kids nope that's like a generation it. say you don't have no clue of, some of them, they have no concept. Every, every one of them wants to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah, you know, what's that mean? Well, I come up with an idea and I'll make, a, you know, $500 million. Mm-hmm. And, and you say, uh, what about working? I noticed you haven't had a job. Mm-hmm. Well, no, so far I've avoided that. Yeah. You know, say, oh, that, 
that's the kind of stuff that makes great entrepreneurs, you mm -hmm. know. The sacrificing your youth, like that's what people, they want to be comfortable while they're making money instead of right. be willing to go through like sleeping in your car, driving three hours to make a hundred dollars and driving another three hours to make another hundred right. and then still losing money but going through that to get better paid gigs in the future. And that, that's the true business, like entrepreneurial spirit. But most people think it's just like to sit around and wait until somebody comes and knock on your door and offers you a bunch for it. So, yeah, just a I had to learn that the hard way. Like I always, like when I was doing my production videos, I would undercut myself trying to get the job. But then some people would see like you're willing to do it for fifty dollars. You can't be professional, so they would just refuse it off that. You so know, I had a, smarter. I had a period. My my uh, first wife had cancer, and uh, she had cancer for nine years. And when she finally passed, she had cancer of the liver cancer of the uh, chest, uh, lungs, uh, and then finally the brain. And just pure, for nine years, she'd get better for a while and then have it again and have it again. And so I didn't like to be out on the road when she was sick. You know, she, I'd, I'd try to not get booked. And towards the end, I'd try so hard to not leave. People would call me up and want to book me, mm -hmm. uh, big corporations, and uh, involve video and books and all kinds of stuff. And, and so I kept raising my fee, and I said, they'll never pay this. Mm -hmm. And they, then they called me up and said, well, I want you two days at that rate. And, mm -hmm. and I'd be struggling to go to the door and get away, and my wife is not coherent, you know. And, and with what a struggle. So, so my, my real increase in fees at the end was because I didn't want to leave when I go out. Oh yeah, it was amazing that uh, just like you say, you cut your fee oh, yeah. to get this. I raised my fee to not get it, mm -hmm. and uh, they did it anyway. And, uh, yeah. and then I'd feel guilty when I go driving to the airport. I, I should be staying here. Mm -hmm. Why she can't? communicate with you in any way you can't even squeeze your hand and, you know and but life is a funny thing you know it just mm -hmm. sometimes it just turns you you know to where <laughs> you got to go with the flow and mm -hmm. think about what's right and that's what's sometimes difficult is what is the right thing to do yeah. not is what what'll get me the most money or or what'll make me happiest or things like that it's what's right and uh i don't know i can't understand young people oh yeah like uh my biggest thing is i kind of live like a hobo even though i have a house or apartment like being able to like just survive on pretty much 20 dollars a week when it's pretty like 20 dollars mm because -hmm. i get a job where i get 65 percent off so every sandwich i get only costs two dollars and I kind of fast like Jesus, and I eat every two days, but I still feel perfectly healthy, and I don't have no like. It's not slowing me down, so. You know, um, I believe that fasting actually increases your creativity. Yeah, yeah. It clears your mind because you're walking around with a belly full. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
<laughs> That's how I got my first gig. I was working a job, and I started getting real, like, disillusioned. So I fasted for about four days. Then on that fourth day, somebody called me. They offered me $150 to come to Virginia. And it was only for 10 minutes worth of jokes. And I was like, this is crazy. And that was the one that I I was, like, thankful for, and I got all happy. But as soon as I did the gig, I got booed off stage, except for, like, three people in the back that were <laughs> comics, too, and they right. understood it. Because they didn't know that I was going to be dirty. I didn't know it was going to be a family gig either. Because they booked me for like a lady's 50th birthday party. And there was a bunch of kids there. And I was like, I have to edit and change and clean up everything I do. And it was didn't work. And it worked at the beginning. Like I talked about my clothes. But even though I messed up, the guy paid me. And he said he would book me on like another show in Fayetteville in a couple of months. So it's like, no matter what happened, I always had to keep going to flow and right. keep the... I, I remember one night... Uh, Decatur, Illinois. Mm -hmm. I this was actually a, a like was a variety show, and I I didn't belong in there at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a two uh, two singers, Homer and Jethro, were two famous famous uh, uh, comedy uh, uh, like routine uh, country uh, and. Uh, one of them had died, so I don't know whether it was Homer or Jethro, but he was doing a single, and uh, he was making uh, big money, still making uh, a pretty good act. And he went, this was the Knights of Columbus, which was a Catholic organization, oh, yeah. putting on their annual show, and big deal. And he worked blue, I mean, mm -hmm. working blue, uh, I'm sure it's the same thing. He did a dirty show, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, the uh, and I was doing an inspirational little thing of uh, one of my books, uh, like maybe Love Is a Target was one of my books, and mm -hmm. and uh, doing a st some stuff like that uh, from a Christian standpoint, mm -hmm. which was <laughs> a whole lot different than uh, oh, yeah. and and this guy is also. A whole lot different than Homer and Jethro were. I mean, he was just uh, bottoming out on his career, I think. But, mm -hmm. but you, you can run into that anywhere in the world. Um, to me, I think when you work blue, you're getting desperate. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, uh, that's just my opinion. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I've always tried not to do it, but. I've told some stupid jokes in my lifetime that just the same. Mm -hmm. You find out later that you shouldn't have told that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They'll let you know. Yeah, I remember once though, like somebody, I, I, they told me that the crowd was kind of conservative, don't do dirty stuff. And then I started off; it was all five minutes clean. And then soon I started telling stories about like all the weird stuff that's happened to me, and it's kind of like just super blue. And then they were laughing even harder. But I had to set myself up to make sure he knew it was all this entertainment first and right. flow in that moment. It's, it's a strange thing, the stages you go in your life, you yeah. know. And uh, uh, sometimes I, uh, I used to wonder, how did I get on this particular stage? Mm -hmm. And I, I could use, most of the time I pulled it through. I've, I've had very few real total failures, but but I wasn't working comedy clubs doing uh, open mic or something like that. That's like fighting for your life. Oh, yeah. 
it depends on who's there that night on how good you do sometimes. So. And the weird setups, like they have it, the main club, they're like, you have to get there at six to sign up. They put the list out at seven and the show doesn't start till eight. So it's like, you've been there for two hours before you even go up on the stage and you might be number 20, so you're not gonna go up till 9.30. Right. But you've been there for three and a half hours. I, I, you know where Charlotte is here? Mm -hmm. uh, you know the Coliseum there? Oh, yeah. I did the Coliseum and uh, I, a fellow named Zig Ziglar who was the hottest speaker in the country at the time, opened at 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. And I was scheduled to go on at 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. <laughs> With people speaking all that time, you know, a nice break for dinner. And at we're getting near 10, and the guy who hired me, he said, Art, he said, uh, we're running late, and, and uh, I've got uh, a singer coming in, and I'm paying overtime for the for the band and everything. Would you mind if she went on first? Mm -hmm. I said, "Who is it?" He says, "Brenda Lee." Mm -hmm. uh, and Brenda Lee was a highlight, uh, big big name. And I can just imagine myself following Brenda Lee, you know, with a fast, loud band coming on there, doing a, a humorous motivation speech oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then she's supposed to do 45 minutes and she did an hour and a half mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> I got on at midnight oh, yeah. and uh, I I'm gonna cut this short because I survived and did a good job oh, yeah. and came out of there with all of my vital organs and everything and it's just amazing, though, that the predicaments you can get in, and you say, "I can't." This nobody can come on there oh, yeah. and do that. That's and, back in the old days, so you didn't have a phone to distract you. Like, well, it's late. I might as well just play games or something. You just had to like just be in the moment with it. Right. It go with the flow, and mm -hmm. I think though that people who don't have trouble in their lives are are really handicapped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah. any kind of, or any time a small trouble comes along, they act like it's the biggest thing ever. Right. right. But what's the biggest thing ever happened to you? You know, well, I was embarrassed when at time. Mm -hmm. I said, well, they kept throwing stuff at me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was raised by a schizophrenic, so it was kind of or not really untreated. He was like over medicated right. to the point where the medication made him a little crazier than normal. So now it's like. From 30 years of that, or 23, four moved out, it ended up preparing me for pretty much anything in comedy. So I never have any real, I guess I never have any fear on stage or anxiety. I just right. kind of go over there and see what happens. Right. But, I, I've often asked myself, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Mm -hmm. And I'd say, well, they could throw stuff at me or mm -hmm. chase me out. Of, and you say, well, can you handle that? Oh, certainly, you know, that's yeah. not, like I've, <laughs> I've been through the mill, you know, and you say, well, then if you can handle it, forget it. You know, you don't have to have any anxiety about this. Mm -hmm. I used to visualize audiences uh, as a uh, loving crowd mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, uh, caring, loving, responsive. And, mm -hmm. and if you can visualize that before you walk on stage, that's about where they're at. Oh, yeah. you know?
just level with them. Yeah, you might get something to eat too. <laughs> mm-hmm. You ever had an out of body experience on like stage? Because maybe like four years ago, it seemed like I was watching myself from behind myself. Uh-huh. But it was like I went on stage, like I got there late, and they're like, we want to go up last. And I was like, the last person was on, and I walk right up on stage. But it seemed like I was not even in my own body. It was the best that I ever had. But it was. Mm-hmm. So you made it all the way to watching yourself. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I could do five minutes if I, I wrote books on, uh, first five minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens there is, I mean, I used to do one hour and two hour speeches sometimes, but, but, five minutes. You better be there. Yeah. After five minutes, you better be in tight. You got, and they gotta forget all about time. And mm-hmm. and what seems to them is 15 minutes later, it's two hours, and they've signed up for what you want them to do, and mm-hmm. and and a life change, a corporation changing event has just happened, and uh, nobody's gonna get hurt yeah. at that plant mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Well, gee, this has been fun here. Yep, we've done about a half hour so far. <laughs> I guess we'll do the sign off. You want to take any other more topics? We got the lights on. Mm-hmm. I think. I guess the last question like, what has kept you going like for all these years to reach 90 and still be feeling pretty creative? And I, I keep asking. Let me take you way back to my high school, and I was a black sheep. Uh, uh, I was the uh, class clown, mm-hmm. like so many people. Maybe you were. Yeah. Yeah, class clown, and I went to the University of Detroit High School, taught by Jesuit priests, very, very serious disciplinarian. And there I am making cracks all the time. And so they would put me in what they called the jug. That was just a classroom where you had to stay after school for two hours or an hour or whatever, just to uh, sit there and do your homework. But uh, anyway, that was my image. And in the yearbook, when I graduated, it said, uh, Art Fittig has been voted the most jugged person to ever attend the University of Detroit High School. I was the worst they ever had. And I despised those Jesuits and I hated school and I came out of there and I said, in no way am I going to college. You know, because the natural thing where we lived, we'd naturally go to the University of Detroit taught by Jesuits. You know, I was in like a pre-college high school. And so uh, that destroyed my early childhood, really. Mm-hmm. Really destroyed it. Uh, and uh, uh, so, um, what were we talking about to start with? This is staying creative for uh, all okay. these years. And we, but we had this one cut, but we had this one Jesuit priest named Father Skiffington. And he taught English in my, in my uh, junior year, I think it was, and I, I was starting to write poetry already. Mm-hmm. And 
then somebody else asked me, and I started writing. I became the staff poet on the school newspaper. And back, they, the way they used to set up magazines and sheets for printing, they'd put them together and there'd be little spaces between that they had to fill. Mm -hmm. And so they'd fill them with a picture or whatever. And with me, they'd just slap one of my poems in there. Mm -hmm. And I'd give them a half a dozen to work with. And so they slapped the poems in there. Well, one day Father Skiffening called me aside and he said, to Art, he said, I believe the good Lord gave every one of us a talent, a, a special talent. And if we can discover that talent somehow and polish that talent and put that talent to work for the good of all humankind, he said, then we can be successful and we can be happy and we, we can justify our position here on mm -hmm. earth. You know, mm -hmm. so that as time passes, you, you say, well, I'm doing something with my talent. Yeah. And he said, Art, I believe the good Lord puts you here to serve as a bad example. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, Father, you got to admit I'm doing a great job of it. Oh, yeah. and, and so I actually adapted that in my career where I would play the bad example. And safety, I became Joe No-No, oh, yeah. you know. And I would fall on the rat tracks and get hit, knocked off the trains, and we'd photograph that. And then we had a great campaign at the railroad where I worked with my picture doing all this stupid stuff mm -hmm. that says, don't be a Joe No-No. Mm -hmm. You know, I was the bad example. Yeah. In, in creative writing, I had a poem rejected mm -hmm. uh, 30 times, the 30th time. I sold, mm -hmm. and uh, I think I got 50 or $25, I don't know, put it right in the middle of the magazine where the staples are, and mm -hmm. and I, back then we used to have Playboy in, mm -hmm. in the middle of the magazine where the staples were. My son mm -hmm. uh, was actually 16 years old before he discovered that girls didn't have staples in their navels. Yeah. I mean, that was, mm -hmm. that was that bad. And, Anyway, now they do uh, with the Pearsons. Huh? Now they do with the Pearsons. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Not, but anyway, over the years, I've used that being a bad example. You know, you know. I mentioned uh, uh, Mark Hansen and that book, Chicken mm -hmm. Soup. I used to teach at the YWCA's, of course based on that poem mm -hmm. that was rejected so many times. And I built the whole course around it because all it writing is is throwing stuff out there to editors and that some of them all buy. And I started selling pretty good. So I taught a course, you can sell your writing. And then second year I did it, I went home and made tapes of what I'd said at the class. Mm -hmm. And I throw in, I make copies of some of the stuff I sold and recommend, put some books in the course. And I read an, read an ad in Writer's Digest. That was the largest writer's magazine. Mm -hmm. And I started selling these tapes. Well, then some guy contacted me from Virginia and he said, I buy tapes and then I rent them to my clients. Mm -hmm. 
and I'll buy five of each of your tapes and your album and sell them. Well, one guy, you know, he rented my whole writer's course. And that guy was Mark Hansen, Mark Victor Hansen, who was a shipping and soup guy. Oh, yeah. So he actually took a course from me long before he became successful on overcoming, you know, yeah. rejection. Mm -hmm. And so in the back of my head, a little spark goes on and says, Art, you taught that guy to take all that rejection, mm -hmm. you know. To sit through all that and to keep trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. And how did you learn to overcome all the rejection you've had? And you're getting it. How do you, and I'm getting it. You know, who wants to hire a 90 year old humorist? You'd be out of your mind. He could die right on the stage. And I don't mean not get laughs. I mean die. He said, hey, we had a comic die last night in this club. Oh, that happens every night, doesn't it? He said, not like this one. <laughs> that happened in England a couple months ago. Did it really? Yeah. It was like a, I think it was, he was like 95 or something like that. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, how, how many times has somebody died while you were doing your program? Only one or twice. Not really died, but they had an epileptic seizure. Right. Because the comic on stage had a flashy shirt on, and it hit the lights. And out of nowhere, like, you see some guy start falling, and the whole show, whole show stops. See, if you're in a place that's drinking, I mean, mm -hmm. people pass out and things like that. Oh, yeah. But I was doing a straight uh, a poetry association, Michigan Poetry Association, mm -hmm. all these poets and everything. And I was reciting this powerful poem. <laughs> it was so powerful. The guy keels over on the floor, yeah. and the nurses, there's no heartbeat, no heartbeat. And I thought, oh my God, he died. Yeah. But he didn't. They we took him to the hospital. She finally gave him the, what do you give him? Uh, the resuscitation. Resuscitation, and he came around and lived. But I thought, man, what a. What a thing. I was just reciting one of my poems and this guy dropped dead on me. Mm -hmm. Some know? people laugh and forget to breathe. Like they'll blow it all out and then not take anything in and keep blowing it out. And just, right. They, uh, just yeah. choke themselves out. They choke too. Mm -hmm. If you're really funny, people mm -hmm. start choking. And the steak and chicken shows, like when they upsell it with uh, free food in there. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jambalaya meal. <laughs> So, what do you guys talk about? Well, I talk about the guy dying while I was on. Mm -hmm. He said, you mean you? And I said, no, no, I didn't have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. I'm innocent. Oh, yeah. I guess the, this has been a fun, informative, and inspirational chat with Art Fettig. And I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I had recorded it. Do you have any kind of uh, social media or any kind of things you'd like to put out for your own promotion? Uh, you can go to A-R-T-F-E-T-T-I-G dot com and we have a blog there. You can get a weekly blog from us. A-R-T-F-E-T-T-I-G dot com and it's free. You can just sign up for it. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, that was the show, guys. Music. Here we go. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Well, how, how much everything she got in there, but I'm going to tell you what. That's a take. It's right. So that was the podcast. Great conversation, very inspirational between both of us. Remember, if you like that, share and subscribe. I don't have a paywall up yet, but that motherfucker's coming. So if you want to support, you can give me $2 a month so I can build that bitch up to 10,000 people paying $2,000. And I can get the ball rolling on that fucking underground Batman house. Or that Black Panther Jaguar 98, baby. <laughs> or 90, yeah, 98 Jaguar 4X4 with 500 horsepower. That's pretty much what I want out of this podcast is become the Black Tim Allen making hot rods for no reason other than it's all art. Every aspect of human creativity. That's why I don't understand people. Like, I know this girl who had this joke or bit about her pissing on a guy's Lamborghini. I'm like, bitch, you ain't a real comic because a real comic be like, that Lamborghini is the fucking... Joey Diaz of cars. The motherfucker don't give a fuck. It's like, hey, I'm gaudy because I like, I know I got like 650 horsepower in front of this bitch. I got four wheel drive ready to just grip the mic. Yeah. It's all design and art. Like everything that I fuck with, it's beautiful as hell. Even if it's ugly to other people, like a Lamborghini to a bitch nigga. But yeah, this has been fun. Hopefully I keep recording episodes if people keep answering my phone calls. If you want to be on the podcast, make a fucking anchor account and send me your fucking messages. Because I can play it back. I can put you in the podcast, bitch. You can ask me a question, boom. Get that bitch answered in fast-ass motion because something's fucked up about this app. <laughs> but yeah, see you guys later.